0: Good morning, Grace. Please open your Bibles to Luke. If you don't have a Bible, we have ushers that can bring you one. You can lift your hand. We have ushers in the back that can uh, put one in your hands. We have one right here, and I don't see any ushers. The ushers are hiding in the back. There, Dave Talley can become our usher. Not a better-looking usher on the planet. Um, there's at least one, maybe a couple of others. Um Open your Bibles to Luke 1, please. We're taking a break from our series in the Gospel of Mark to do an Advent series, um, looking at different characters leading up to the uh, story of Christmas, and so we're going to start with John the Baptist today. So starting in Luke 1, I'm going to read just a little bit from verse 13 through 17 in Luke 1, and then we'll pray. And then we will get started. So Luke 1, starting in verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Help us to take some time out of this busyness of this Christmas season to just wait, to wait in expectation for Jesus, to be filled with the Spirit, to be reminded that we need to repent from our sins, and to point all that we come into contact with to the gospel of Jesus. And we pray that you will use your word to accomplish these things now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't know about you, but I don't think of myself as a very patient person. I don't like to wait. And just in the last two weeks, I've been just kind of making mental notes of things that have annoyed me that I've had to wait on. And the list actually got really long. I had to edit it because I didn't want to only give that list. But I don't like waiting for the cold water to turn hot in my shower. I don't like waiting at stoplights. For some reason, like, I know they're there for safety, but I really just, if no, one's at the, if no one's coming, then I don't like waiting for a stoplight. I don't like waiting whenever I'm texting someone, and I know they're texting me back and there's those three circles. Like, that really annoys me for some reason. I want them to hurry up and just get it back. I don't like waiting at checkout lines at grocery stores. Um, I, I will, if I have a choice, I will go to Fresh and Easy because I'm much more efficient checker-outer than the person that's at Vaughn's. In fact, I, I tend to kind of take all of these little neuroses of myself, and I think of them, not, that's not that I'm impatient, it's that I like to be efficient, right? I kind of rebaptize it as somehow it's actually a good trait of mine. Not, it's not that I lack patience, I've, I've got some sort of virtue that's in place. But probably the greatest um, pain in waiting is here. Costco gas line. That's the worst waiting on the face of the world for me. I, every time I pull up to Costco, I wonder, is there like the meteor coming and everyone has to get gas to get out of town? I don't know about it. There's so many people at Costco. And then the person in front of me, it's like they've never gotten gas at Costco before. They didn't know they needed their Costco card. They walked up and says, please insert card. And they're like, which card? I don't know which card. And they don't... It's, it just, that just—that drives me crazy. I'm such an impatient person. It's ridiculous. And it's not unusual for me, right? This, our whole culture... Patience is on the decline in our culture right now. Um, researchers have noted that 250 milliseconds is the amount of time that uh, you need for your website to get a competitive edge over your competitor. That means that we, the American population, if it takes the time that our eye blinks longer to go to one website than the other, then they'll always go to the faster one. And that amount of speed, we notice that. That competitive edge actually picks up. Patience is on such a decline that one prominent researcher, quote, worries someday that people will be too impatient to conduct studies on patience. <laughs> in fact, this, this is so true in our culture. Now, there's been a kind of countercultural Pendulum swing towards a slow movement. Maybe you've heard about it. There's people that are in, they're kind of, they're going to live a slow life and they're going to eat slow food, not fast food, and read slow media, not fast media. And this is what happens whenever we're, prep, we're sermon prepping. We get into it, all of a sudden I find myself interested. I spend two hours reading about the slow movement. I want to join the slow movement. I'm, I'm, now I'm into the slow movement. I went to their websites to pull out so I could kind of join the slow movement, but their websites took too long to load. I didn't have time to wait on the slow movement website, so I had, to, I had to keep moving. But it's an interesting case, isn't it, because if anything, this sort of impatience and this, this um, inability to wait is only increased in December for Americans, and maybe even Christian Americans as the most, yet that's the time that we're supposed to be thinking about waiting the most, because that's what Advent is. Advent is waiting. Now I don't know about you but where I grew up I didn't think much about the difference between Advent and Christmas. I grew up in a free church tradition much like this one. So it wasn't we didn't have a liturgical background and so I didn't think carefully about Advent and the four Sundays of Advent that lead into the Sundays of Christmas. And so they tend to get collapsed together in in the way many of us think of Christianity. And so we don't think that historically the church thought pretty differently about Advent as a time of waiting and Christmas as a time of celebrating what has come. And so it's actually somewhat helpful to divide these a little bit, just to think in terms of Advent as a time where we're to wait. And there's actually Christmas carols, Christmas hymns that help us with this. There are Advent hymns. Like, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here, and tell the Son of God, this is not a celebration Christmas song yet, is it? It's an expectation. Oh, come, come, Lord Jesus. We are waiting for you to come. Or also, come, thou long-expected Jesus. We're waiting for you to come. The promise of the Messiah has come, and now we're waiting for those promises to be fulfilled. Those could be Advent Christmas songs. And then there's Christmas songs right the, the, the actual celebration hymns something like hark the herald Angels scene right that the newborn king has come he's born we're celebrating the wait is over that's a christmas song isn't it another christmas song this one can be sung not only at christmas of course but joy to the world they think of it as a christmas song the lord has come he's here the waiting is over, and now we're celebrating. And so as we're entering into this Advent series, I want us to think a little bit about what it means to do the Advent part, the waiting part, the waiting on Jesus And there's actually two parts of this. The first part of the Advent is trying to remind ourselves what it would have been like to have been waiting for the birth of Jesus as the people of God for all of those years. So that's the past coming. There was a past coming, a past Advent, a past arrival, that we want to walk in the shoes of those people. So while we're doing that, let's actually take our Bibles and flip back to the Old Testament to Malachi. So this is the final book of the Old Testament. So go to Matthew and just go a couple more pages. And we're going to actually look in the very last few verses of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, to kind of set the stage for this waiting that we're trying to walk in in this time of Advent now. So Malachi 4. Starting in verse 5, I'm just going to read this really small little passage. Malachi, of course, in the way that our Bibles are arranged, is the last book of the Old Testament, but it's also believed he's the last prophet. And so at the end of the close of his statement here, there is no more prophets, and it enters into a time of silence from the Spirit. So verse 5, Malachi 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the lord comes he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest i come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction what are people waiting on from malachi alone what are they waiting on well they're waiting on elijah to come they're waiting on this great and awesome day of the lord when, when hearts of fathers are going to go to children and children are going to come to their fathers, and they're, they're waiting for the Lord to do something. And then what happens? In our Bibles, we flip a couple of pages and we get to Matthew, but actually, in reality, it took almost 500 years for that gap. There's about 400 and some, 450, 460 years, where there's no more prophets. Josephus, a contemporary of around Jesus' time, explains this time from the Jewish perspective. He says, from basically the time of Malachi until now, that is, until the New Testament era, everything has been recorded, but nothing has been deemed worthy because the exact succession of the prophets had ceased. Now think about that for a second. Throughout the Old Testament, there was a prophet. You could expect for there to be a prophet, someone who could come to you and say, thus says the Lord. Someone who you could go to and say, what does God want me to do? And then all of a sudden... There's no more prophet. And the people, the children of Israel during this time, they believe the wording that they use is the Holy Spirit has departed Israel. Right? That's why we have no new books of of prophecies written after that. The Holy Spirit has departed Israel. And for nearly 500 years, we get nothing. Now imagine walking in that waiting, right? just imagine, we know there's a claim that the Messiah is going to come. We know that that God is going to come and visit his people. We know there's going to be this great day of the Lord, and Elijah is going to be somehow related to it. But we are just waiting and waiting and waiting. If you're like me, don't you understand the temptation to become skeptical during that long wait? My grandfather's grandfather's grandfather was waiting, and now I'm still waiting too. And there's such a a tendency just to get leery and weary of this waiting. That's the kind of waiting we want to remind ourselves of. Now, some of you may say, okay, that makes sense, but why do we still sing Advent songs? Right In other words, Jesus has come now. We, why do we still remind ourselves of the waiting? Isn't it now time to only celebrate? Well, that's the point that there's actually also another kind of waiting that we are participating in, now, and that's the future coming of Jesus. So Jesus has come once, and this came out in some of the readings from, from Walt earlier, that Jesus has come once, but... He started the process, but he hasn't yet completed his work. He will come again. That's a future coming. So we're in this Advent season. We remind ourselves of what it was like to wait for the Messiah and celebrate his coming. And in the midst, we're saying, yeah, the Messiah has come, but there's still things in this world that Jesus wants to get rid of. And we're waiting for him to come and finish that. There's so many New Testament promises of this. Let me just point at one. Here's a claim from Peter's preaching in Acts about what Jesus is doing right now. This is that God may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke to the prophets. So where's Jesus now? Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us, but he knows that he's not yet done, right? He doesn't have a mission accomplished banner that he's sitting under. He's ready to come back and finish the work, and we don't have to work hard to see that, do we? We know that there are things in this world that need the finished work of Jesus, not only our own souls, but just the problems that are in the world. And this is one of the reasons that there's a Christian reason to be thinking of those less fortunate during Christmas season and Advent season. Because it's a reminder, while we're waiting, not only celebrating the fact that Jesus came, we're waiting for, oh, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, wipe every tear. Finish this that you've started. Even this week alone, as I'm preparing my sermon, I ran into a, a, a man who works on campus who asked me to pray for his wife who's in hard times, um, My our, our good friend and... Rob Lister's mother, it looked like she's, she's dying of cancer, it looked like she was going to die on Wednesday. I just prayed with Glenn from the first service out there that has some new health issues, right? We don't have to look hard to see the kinds of things that we want Jesus to come and to complete. And that gives us, there's kind of, this, that's part of the Advent season is there's a sense of which we are waiting, right? We shouldn't be surprised that we're not all happy all the time. But there's a part of the Advent that reminds us, that's right, we're still longing for Jesus. We're still waiting for him to come, establish his kingdom, and wipe every tear. And it's in the midst of this kind of context that we can enter into uh, John the Baptist's role really well. Because John the Baptist in some ways is the perfect Advent character, isn't he? He comes before Jesus. He points to Jesus. He prepares the soil for Jesus and the new covenant. He bridges the old covenant, the old testament, and the new covenant, as well as anyone else in scripture. So let's look at John. So go back to Luke 1. We're going to focus on when the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah and the prophecy that Gabriel gives to Zechariah about John. And we're going to look at this carefully. We'll see how it lives out in John's life. We'll try to make personal pastoral applications to her own life in that process so look at verse 15 Gabriel tells the father about John he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb now remember, remember what we just said about the Holy Spirit the people of Israel believed that the Holy Spirit had done what? had departed. Why? Because the role of the Holy Spirit was to come to prophets and to give the word of the Lord. And there's nearly 500 years no prophet, therefore 500 years that in the experience of the children of Israel, the Holy Spirit had departed. Now all of a sudden, does the fact that the Holy Spirit has come into the womb of this woman have a little more weight than what we might have realized right off? If you were a contemporary of Luke, you'd have said, wait, hold on, you're telling me the Holy Spirit just came back? In fact, the Holy Spirit's all over Luke 1, 2, and 3. It's amazing. The soil is being prepared. People are waiting, and the Holy Spirit's at work. And even after Jesus is born, they take him to Simeon. And what has happened? The Holy Spirit has revealed to Simeon that he will not die until he sees the Lord's promised one. That the Holy Spirit, who seems to have been absent and gone now, is coming back and is at work, and primarily in work of entering the womb of this woman into this unborn child. When we preach exegetically, which we're committed to doing at this church, sometimes we don't do a lot of topical sermons, but what we do want to do is lift out topics when they come. And isn't there just really quickly a comment here about the worth and the status of an unborn child in this passage? that the Holy Spirit can enter into the womb of a woman and that that child will leap in the presence of Jesus the Messiah. There's, sometimes people might say, well, does the Bible say anything about whether the child is a child or not? Well, there seems to be a really clear indication that this is a human child that the Holy Spirit can seal with the promise. It's amazing, isn't it? In this little story, to actually have something like that fall out as well. So John's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, just like the Old Testament prophets, and filled from the time that he's born. And you see that lived out in his life, don't you? You see that in in chapter 3, the word of the Lord comes to John. He's in the wilderness, just like the prophets. The word of the Lord would come to the prophets. And then John begins his ministry because the word of the Lord has come, and he's full of the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit is so relevant in his life, it's so on him that the people think he's the Christ. They say, is it this the Messiah? Are you the one that we've been waiting on? We can recognize there's something about your preaching, something about your baptism and your teaching that's so different from anything else that we've ever seen. We are tempted to think that you must be an actual Messiah. Jesus says yes about John. This man is a prophet, right? He's, He's got the spirit on him. He's now the word of the Lord came to him, and he's not just a prophet, he's more than a prophet, right? There's, there's no question that John is playing this prophetic role, and which the passage says, in the spirit of Elijah. This is a fulfillment of that passage that we just looked at from the Old Testament, isn't it? That this he's going to come in the spirit of Elijah, and he's he's... He's going to be completely all about the Spirit's work. The Spirit's work in Luke, the Spirit's work in John, and people are recognizing the Spirit. And then John says what? John says, do I have that here? I can't remember. No, I don't. He says in Luke 3, people come to him and say, hey, are you going to be the Messiah? He says, you know what? I baptize you with water, but one is coming who will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit. We get a little biblical theology of the Holy Spirit in this few chapters, don't we? Here's the biblical theology of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came to prophets, only prophets, to give the word of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit comes to John in a similar way. But now, through Jesus in the new covenant, who gets the Holy Spirit? Everybody who trusts Jesus, right? So now, you and I walking around have the same Spirit within us that only went to John and the prophets in the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? Don't you see the power that we can check into? And that's the application from this first point, that John is filled with the Spirit, and now in our waiting in this Advent, while it may be difficult, it's difficult to slow down during this season and wait, isn't it? But you've got the Spirit to help you. You can tap into this power. You can say, wow, Spirit, help me to prepare myself well. Help me to think well and resist some of the cultural trends and pressures and even the Christian trends and pressures to rush through this season and find myself with a room full of opened packages having not yet really considered the gravity of the waiting upon the Lord. So the first thing we see from this passage is that he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The next thing we see is another fulfillment of this passage from the Old Testament. That he's going to have a ministry of turning hearts. Look at verse 16. So he's going to be filled with the Spirit. Gabriel tells his father, verse 16, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Right? His role is going to be what? One of turning hearts. The word we use for this is just repentance. That John's father is told, your son is going to have the Holy Spirit, he's going to be a prophet, and his primary role is going to be one of preaching repentance. And is that John's life or what? As soon as he shows up on the scene in every gospel, he's presented as, John came preaching a baptism of the repentance of sins. Right? That, that's what he's doing. That's what he's known for. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in the other gospels, they primarily emphasize how weird John is, right? Mark, we just preached. John's only, basically, said he's, he preaches us repentance, um, he wears weird clothes, and he eats weird stuff, right? That's just kind of John. That's, that's, what you, that's all you get from John and some of the others. In Luke, we get a little bit more about what John's actual preaching, what his actual teaching is. Then he's teaching, hey, repent. That's how he comes in in chapter three. He says, therefore, to the crowds that came, right? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Keep bear fruits in keeping with repentance. I considered starting my sermon this morning instead of good morning, Grace, with good morning, brood of vipers. I wasn't sure how it would play or not, but I thought maybe they'd pick up on it being John the Baptist. He's not a seeker sensitive preacher, is he? People are coming out in the wilderness. It says all of Judea is coming out to see. It's almost like they're, they're coming out to see the freak show. Look at the weird guy eating locusts. That's what we're going out to see. But when they get out there, what do they have? They have him pointing their fingers at them, and he's saying, you need to repent. Because your problem is that you're a sinner. And to repent means what? It means to change your mind, to think differently. But it's not merely to change your mind, it's to change your direction. And we see this from from John right here. That changing your direction is actually going to change your motion. The the reminder is we're all sinners. And and even as we enter into this Advent, it's like, what sins do we have right now that are keeping us from being able to fully wait on Jesus' will? And of those sins, what do we need to not only just turn our mind, but turn our direction and move in a different direction? As John says, to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Right? That repentance will follow with fruits that follow that. It's actually interesting. People respond to John's preaching. They say, What shall we do? What a great response to preaching. What shall we do? Not merely what shall we think. What shall we do, John? And you know what, John? John is interested in giving very pragmatic, concrete examples. He says things like, hey, if you've got two cloaks, if you've got two tunics, share one. If you have food, share your food. The tax collectors say, what should we do? And you know what John does not say? John does not say, stop being a tax collector and join me in the wilderness and become a wild man, locust-eating prophet like me. Right? He doesn't say that, does he? He says, keep being a tax collector, but stop taking money that's not yours. The soldiers say, what should we do? He says, keep being a soldier. But be happy with the wages that you have. Don't take wages that are unjust. There's a Christian vocation notion here, isn't there? That even in the midst of this Christmas season, you can wait for Jesus well in the midst of the vocation that you're doing. How? By doing it in a way that glorifies God. God has called you to that, just like God has called these tax collectors into being tax collectors and these soldiers to being soldiers. Notice, we know that John the Baptist says, uh, hey, I, didn't, I came to baptize you with water, but one who's coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. But we forget what John says right after that. And Luke, John says about Jesus, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with one quenchable fire. How's that for a Christmas message? Behold, the Lord has come and he's going to separate people into two categories. And half of them he will burn with fire. That's John's repentance message is it just me or if John was a pastor kind of around on the other side of town, would we all think he was a little too much? We just kind of think he's a little overboard. Uh, It's just, he's a little, he doesn't, John doesn't appreciate nuance. He doesn't appreciate kind of trying to be careful. He doesn't appreciate kind of like understatement. No, he is someone who is all about saying what? You are a brood of vipers because you're sinners and you need to repent because Jesus is coming. That's how he's preparing the way for the Lord. The interesting thing is in in Luke 3, it tells us with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to people. This message of John was good news. (laughs) It's good news to be told the truth about ourselves. We can apply this even in this Christmas season, can't we? We can apply it the same way that Eric just did. Our greatest need right now is not whatever the commercials are telling us. Our greatest need is that we are sinners and we need Jesus. Our greatest need is that we need to repent. We need to trust Jesus. But we also have actual sins in our life actually now that we need to change our mind and think differently about. We need to change our actions. We need to change our direction. And we need to begin to bear fruit in accordance with this repentance. The last thing we see about John is that he's calling is to prepare people for the Lord. This is what... Gabriel says finally at the end, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. We might think, what's that mean? What? That's a whole sermon series, right? To prepare, let every heart prepare him room. And we might think, well, what does it mean for John to be preparing people, making them ready? Well, let's go a little further in Luke 1 to Zechariah's prophecy, starting in verse 67. I'm actually going to pick it up in 76. But notice, first of all, in 67, so this is after the birth, John's been born now. Zechariah is actually going going to prophesy as well. He's filled with the Spirit in verse 67. Once again, you see the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit's been silent for 500 years almost, and now the Holy Spirit's all involved in all these processes. Now, notice what His Father says about His Son in verse 76, and we're going to find out what does it mean for John to be preparing the way for the Lord. And you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. What does it mean for John to be preparing the way for the Lord? Well, he's going to be given of the knowledge of salvation to the people. And that we need forgiveness of sins. And we're going to be reminded of the mercy of God has brought what? The mercy of God has brought light into darkness. What an incredible! Is there a more important Christmas metaphor than light? Christmas is the time of light. We celebrate with lights. This is a reminder of why we celebrate as lights. Because Jesus is the light that comes into the dark world. It's exactly what we're pointed to here. This Christian Christmas kind of prophetic claim of what it is that's going to happen. Give light to those who sit in darkness. Man, do we live in a dark world. What does that dark world need? It needs light. And that's what John's role was. John's role was to point to Jesus, the light, and then get out of the way. And he did it really well, didn't he? He did it really well. Look at John, what the Gospel of John tells us. Jesus comes. I Just think about the ego. I am a person who has struggled sometimes with pride. I'm out in the wilderness, imagine, and people are coming to see the Jason Oaks locust-eating freak show, right? They're coming from all of Judea to be baptized, Ask me, what shall we do? And I'm baptized, and I'm enjoying the fame, and I'm really well-known. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes, and my job is to do what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peace, I'm out. Right? That's basically what John does. And later on, he says what? Hey, My joy is complete because he must increase and I must decrease. John is preparing the way for the Lord by pointing to the light and getting out of the way. Dying in obscurity in a prison cell because as a part of his message of repentance, he's pointing out sin of people who have the ability to kill him. He doesn't care, right? He's going to point out sin wherever he sees it because that's his job. That's his role, to point out sin. And he dies in obscurity in a prison cell while pointing to the light. What a great application for us. During this Advent Christmas season, as we're preparing, what do we want to do? We want to be pointing those who live around us in darkness to the light. And getting out of the way, we're going to be pointing to the gospel, pointing to Jesus, saying, this is why we do what we do. This is why we're Christians. This is why we gather on Sunday morning. This is why we go to Grace Group. This is why we help serve at Food Bank. This is why we give one of our tunics away. This is why we give some of our food away. This is why I live the vocation the way that I do, the way that John has told these others. Why? Because I'm pointing to the light, not to myself. So what we want to do is we want to think about preparing, right? During this season, preparing to wait really is what we're thinking about. How do we best prepare to wait? Now... This is the time, not so much because it's Advent, but because it's the time right after Thanksgiving that we all get our Christmas stuff out, right? And I love getting the Christmas stuff out. It's just a huge, I just, I have this thought always of getting the Christmas decorations out, and it's Norman Rockwell, and there's, and the Handel's Messiah's playing, and all the children are standing around, and we all have smiles on our faces, and we're hanging ornaments on the tree, and it's if a photographer was there, they would take pictures of us and put it in Southern Living or something like that, right? That's Those are the images I have in my brain of getting ready for Christmas, Until I start actually getting ready, right? Because then what do I have to do? I have to go to the garage and get the ladder. And I have to go up multiple flights of stairs and not tear the sheetrock up as I go. And then I get up there and I open the attic. And because I live in Southern California, the attic is hot when I'm getting the Christmas decorations down. The attic should not be hot when you get the Christmas decorations down. It's so annoying to me. The attic is hot. And so then I'm sweaty. And I get mad when I get sweaty. I do not like being sweaty because I'm in the attic and I'm sweaty. And I'm getting boxes down and I'm shoving them down to kids and take them down the stairs. And all of a sudden what? The Norman Rockwell view has turned into something that's much less attractive. right? Southern Living would not want to write an article on this family because the the father is a mad sweaty man in the attic (laughs) pulling boxes down. And one of my jobs, one of my primary jobs, is to put together the Christmas tree. Now, when I get my Christmas tree out of the box, it doesn't look like one of these trees. It looks just the opposite. This is what my tree looks like when I get it out of the box. One of the guys in the box pointed out it looks like the Tasmanian devil. That's exactly what it looks like. And this year it was a devil to me because I got that tree out and then I'm reminded, oh my word, I'm going to have to like work hard to get that to look anything like that. And I'm working hard. And then, a couple of years ago, I had the brilliant plan to not purchase a tree that already has lights on it, but to actually string the lights every year myself. Apparently, every year I want to regret that decision. (laughs) And so I'm stringing the lights. And my children are standing around, oh, Father, please let us put an ornament on the tree. And you're like, in about five hours, kids, just hang on. And then, of course, I get three quarters of the way up the tree. And what happens to the string of lights on the bottom? There's some lights out on it, and so it's gone, and I've got to either search through and find all the bulbs, or I un- take all the lights off and put it back on. And what is happening in this situation, I think I like the preparing for Christmas, but I really don't like it at all, right? And it takes five or six hours just to get the Christmas tree ready. And in that time, I'm sweaty and I'm angry and I'm mad and I've lost all sense of worship and all sense of what it is I'm preparing for and all sense of what I'm waiting on because I'm just flustered and I'm frustrated and I'm sinful and I'm impatient. Those are good reminders, aren't they? Those are good reminders that what? I need spirit-filled waiting. I need the spirit, even in that silly little moment, I need to remind myself I need the spirit right now. I need to repent. I need to repent of my sin. I need to remind myself of the gospel. I need to repent of the sin of my lack of impatience. I need to re- repent of the sins that are so present on my mind. That so often we push to the side. This is a season that as we walking in, what do we learn from John the Baptist? That's what we're trying to get at here. What do we learn from the character of John the Baptist? One is, walk in the spirit during your waiting. Another is those sins that you've constantly been putting to the side as you're coming into this Advent season, stop. Walk in them. Say, I need to repent. I need to change my mind, change my direction, and change my action. Remind myself that my greatest need is for a Savior who comes and removes my sin. And finally, I need to be like John the Baptist and point people to the light that live in the darkness. You know, there's this great little look at Luke 1 68, the very beginning of Zechariah's prophecy, because I want to make a final little point here that's actually quite beautiful. Zechariah is being filled with the Spirit and he's prophesying, and here he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, stop for just a second and think about that. He has visited and redeemed his people. When will that actually happen? In Jesus. But Jesus isn't even born yet in the Gospel of Luke. He certainly hasn't died on the cross yet and been raised from the dead. But what's happening here? The promise is so sure it's as if it's happened. Isn't that amazing? The promise is so sure; it's as if it happened. Whenever I was prepping, and this is kind of a fun glimpse into what happens sometimes. Um, Eric uh, Twisselman is preaching at La Gracia, and so he and I met this week, and we looked at this passage together, and we steal ideas from each other. And I don't think he stole any from me, but I stole a really good one from him. He was talking about the difference between waiting. One of the things that makes waiting so horrible is the idea that what you're waiting for might never show. Right? Isn't that what? That's one of the things that makes waiting really bad. Right? If, if you're waiting on something and you think they've forgotten, if you're at the restaurant and you have this, the little thing in your lap and they told you 25 minutes and it's been 27 minutes, then you have to go check, check on it. Why? Because they might have forgotten you. And that's horrible waiting if they've forgotten about you. But if you have assurance that it's going to happen, it's not a problem. So Eric Tulsman says there's two different kinds of waiting. There's the waiting of the father in the waiting room who has no idea what's going on in the other room, whether his wife's okay, whether the baby's okay. Whether, and that's an anxious kind of waiting, isn't it? And then there's the kind of waiting when the doctor comes out and says, hey, everything's just fine. Your wife is fine. The child is fine. We're we're just letting her rest for a second. You'll be able to go in in five minutes. That's a different kind of waiting, isn't it? The second waiting is a joyous waiting. And that's what we see from Zechariah here. The waiting that we're called to participate in is a joyous waiting because by faith we know that this work of Jesus is as good as accomplished in our midst. That just like Zechariah, we can say, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has accomplished this. By faith, we can cling to the fact that Jesus will come back and complete this work that he's begun. By faith, we can understand this is not the kind of anxious, nervous waiting. This is the celebrating waiting. Amen. Amen thank you Jesus. I'm going to pray. If we have we have grace group leaders or a few people come up, they can pray with you and for you. They'll have a badge around their neck that can stick around after the service as well. Maybe this talk of Having the Holy Spirit has made you question whether you know Jesus or not. Because the only ones who get to be partakers of the Holy Spirit are those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus. And maybe that's not you, or maybe you're not sure about that. Uh, Any one of us would love to talk to you about that. Maybe there's talk of repentance. The Holy Spirit has brought to your mind um, the fact that you need to repent of specific things in your life and change your mind and change your motion so that you can begin to walk in the fruits that bear with that repentance. Or maybe the Holy Spirit is pointing out to you right now how it is that you can be pointing to the light rather than just kind of walking in the days of this Christmas season without thinking of it. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the waiting that we wait in is a joyful expectation because we know that you have already come and you will come again and complete this work and so we can celebrate the waiting rather than dread it. I pray that we would be good waiters, Holy Spirit filled waiters. We would be gospel pointing people as we wait. And we'd be repenting of those sins that you bring into our minds. And we trust that you will do this work in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.